I've got two Bible readings uh, this morning. So the first one is Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And the second reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions that I passed them on to you, just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, 
but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. It is proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. This is God's word. Well, good morning. If we've not met, my name's Matt, and um, uh, it'd be lovely to, uh, to chat to you afterwards. Maybe you have a question about what this passage is saying. <laughs> I have several. But if you are joining us today, uh, we're returning then to the book of 1 Corinthians. We uh, uh, stopped just before Christmas at um, chapter 10, and uh, between now and Easter, then we'll go to the end of uh, this letter. Chapters 2 to tw- uh, 12 to 14, really about the issue of church gatherings and chapter 15, uh, looking forward to resurrection. But uh, I think uh, more than ever, I perhaps feel the need to pray uh, for God's help as um, we don our head coverings together. Our great God and Father, this uh, at first blush feels a long way from our culture, and indeed in many ways it is. But Father, we know that Scripture is written for us. We know that you speak timelessly. So, Father, help us this morning understand this rightly. Would you help me to be careful, not be misunderstood in things that are said? But, Father, would we, as is clear, do all things for your glory? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, of course, few... Few, you say, at last we've come to the bit of the Bible which deals about head coverings, which has been the burning issue in our lives for years. And at last we wonder when on earth we'd get to this. Thank goodness, now I can move on from the impasse in my life and know what I'm meant to do. Or maybe that wasn't your reaction uh, when it was read. And with most people, you went, ooh, yes, it's this passage. Or what is this passage? But if you know, oh, it's this passage. I'm interested to see what he says this morning. (laughs) Well, just to give me a little bit of help this week, I did look up um, uh, modern etiquette on hat wearing. Most of you will know this, of course, but uh, for the 21st century, A gentleman should always remove his hat as he enters into a building, including a restaurant, home, theatre, or church. Uh, This rule includes baseball caps and casual hats. Hats are to be removed when inside, except for places that are akin to public streets. For example, a hotel lobby or a lift in a public building. As these are similar to uh, being out in public, it is acceptable for the gentleman to wear his hat. However... If a woman enters into a lift in a public building, the gentleman should then remove his hat and hold it in front of him in his hand. Okay, that's according to uh, modern etiquette. Uh, For women, it's far more straightforward. 
they are not required to remove their hats indoors, unless, of course, they are rain hats. Okay? And that's a modern secular etiquette on the wearing of hats. And um, that may be of uh, much more use to us, I don't know. Well, you say, who listens to etiquette on hats anyway? In the 21st century in London, who cares what um, the writers of Debrett's and such things say about hats? And I say that because actually that's a highly relevant factor in applying 1 Corinthians 11. No one cares today what you do with your head, what you wear on it or not. Paul is discussing in 1 Corinthians 11 a cultural application of a biblical truth. So if nothing else, you can take away what is on your head is irrelevant. What is in your head, the attitude you have, now that matters. But in the 21st century, what we wear on our head is no indicator of what we're thinking in our head, whereas it was back then. Now, if you've uh, forgotten or wandered around, uh, 1 Corinthians, the whole letter is uh, written by uh, the Apostle Paul to a church, uh, which is very talented, but it's being molded by the world and not by the cross. Uh, so if you think of a cake mold, it, it's being molded into that shape of the world, not molded into Jesus. It's a very worldly sort of church. And as I say, section, uh, these chapters 11 through to 14, he's addressing their behavior when they're gathered as church. Now here in chapter 11, the first half, obviously we're looking just 2 to 16, uh, what is, what's going on? Well, he starts quite well, chapter 11, verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions, just as I pass them on to you. Well, that's a good start. Next week, we'll begin at verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. So um, that's not so good. But uh, here in our passage today, something needs clearing up. Because uh, verse 2, uh, yeah, I praise you, verse 3, but, however... I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of and we'll get to that. You get to the end of our passage, verse 16, there's clearly some contention about what's taking place in church. There's some argument. So when you read this passage, it seems as if the question has come up, um, Paul, uh, so you've, you've explained... Jesus to us, great, we've become Christians. And you've explained now in a sort of radical way for our first century culture that men and women are equal. Amazing. I mean, no one else in culture thinks that, but you're saying that's what we should think as Christians. Great, we're equal. Wonderful. So, Paul, why do we wear different things when we gather as church? Because some of us think, hey, look, I'm equal with my husband. I, I don't want to wear anything else on my head. Why should I do that? And and yet others are thinking, well, this is, I find it very um, offensive that the married wives are not wearing hats. It's into that context that he's writing. So essentially the question is, Paul, why do we distinguish between men and women in church when you've told us we're all equal? And his answer is, look, if you ignore differences between the genders, you'll dishonor God and you'll dishonor your spouse. So essentially, that's what the passage is about. 
Don't ignore gender differences because you'll dishonor God and your spouse if you do so. Honor your head is really the summary of it. Verse 3, honor your head. And you get these three parallels in verse 3. So he says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. These three parallel statements. Now, straight away, we're into one or two difficulties. And you can see from the footnote. The words translated men and women, or man and woman, could equally be translated husband and wife. It's the same word in Greek. It's only ever context that explains it. So I stand up and say, my brother is Daniel. And am I talking about a natural sibling, or am I talking about someone in the church that I view as my brother? Well, only context can help you understand. Here, do we take it as men, women, or husbands, wives? For myself, I think it makes, as you work your way through it, much more sense that Paul is describing the relationship between a husband and a wife, although there's some application more broadly to men and women. Why do I think that? Well, because in a parallel letter in Ephesians, Paul would say there that the the husband, and it's more clear in that section, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. That's the parallel he draws in Ephesians 5, so I think it makes sense that that's what he's doing here, husbands and wives. Okay. Then um, there's a comparison of these relationships then, Um, uh, Christ and man, man and woman, God the Father and Christ. What is the comparison between these three relationships? Because they're not equal. Um, because Christ creates all human beings and man does not create woman and Father did not, God the F- Father did not create God the Son. So, I mean, what is the point of comparison? There is one. That's his, well, he's putting them all next to one another. What is the comparison? Well, through this passage, it is that each head should be honored. That the woman should honor her husband, that men should honor Christ. It's not explicit here, but you get to chapter 15, Christ, God the Son, honors God the Father. So the point of comparison that he's making between these three sets is the head should be honored. What does that mean? Well, let's get into the details. So the headline is on your head, but then he's going to explain it in three slightly different ways. So on your head, so he's going to work through it like this. As culture dictates, verses 4 to 6, as creation shows that the sexes are different, 7 to 10, although they're also interdependent, verses 11 to 12, and then we'll try and draw some conclusions, okay? On your head, first then, as culture dictates. Let me read again verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Now, I'm suggesting then that Having your head covered or uncovered 
is purely a cultural expression back then in Corinth in the first century of honoring. Now, a natural question to ask would be, how could you do that? How could you say that this part of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 11, is just a cultural thing, whereas, I don't know, uh, chapter 6, uh, prostitution is timelessly unacceptable. How can, you, how can you make, how can you do that? That seems like a pick and choose. That seems convenient. Let me suggest two reasons why I'm persuaded. One, biblically, and two, uh, historically, biblically. Elsewhere in the Bible, God is fine with men having their heads covered. Notably, the high priest in Exodus, he's always to have his head covered uh, in public worship. It's the same as in verse 14 when he says it's a disgrace for a man to have long hair. Well, elsewhere in the Bible, men are encouraged to have long hair. If you're a Nazarite in the Old Testament, your long hair is an indication that you are dedicated to the Lord. This is a mark of your holiness. So at points in the Bible, it's good to have long hair and have your head covered if you're a man, but not here. I think it's something to do with here. It's not timelessly the case, biblically. So look, those men amongst us with long hair, top knots, man buns, I think you're okay. I think you're okay. Um, biblically. Fashion-wise, that's the, um, <laughs> biblically, you're fine, Okay. So biblically, it just doesn't quite work that this is always the case. Historically, all the evidence from the first century writings and archaeology is that in this area, the Mediterranean area, the only men who had long hair and the only men who covered their heads were pagan priests who worshipped other gods. So it would be odd if you're a Christian to do what the pagans did uh, in worshipping other gods. That would not be honouring. You can sort of see that. By contrast, in the culture of the day, for a woman in the Mediterranean area to fail to cover her head is essentially, I am, I am refusing to acknowledge my husband. One commentator puts it, to expose her hair to the gaze of a stranger was a wife declaring, I am willing to have the rest of my body exposed to you. Well, that's obviously not the case today. Verse 6, this image of having your head shaved, and what a shame it is. Again, it's not pretty obvious from the when you read and write at the excuse me, from what you can read that was written at the time. Women who had adulterous affairs had their head shaved. I mean, it's pretty brutal, you might think, just a cultural thing. But obviously that would bring shame to them and to their husbands. So don't be like that, he's saying. So for those two reasons, biblically and culturally, uh, historically, I just don't think this is a timeless truth. I think it's a cultural expression of something. Now, in the 21st century, no one cares in the West whether you cover your head or not, or particularly about the length of your hair or not. For us, what is on your head is irrelevant. It's the attitude inside your head that is still of significance. Do notice also here, uh, the issue, it only occurs when someone is praying or prophesying. 
I was chatting about this with, with a friend of the week who said, yeah, there's a woman who comes into our church uh, every Sunday morning and she sits down and the first thing she does is she draws out of her bag a little um, scarf and ties it over her head and sits in the back. Uh, and that for her is, I think she thinks she's honoring 1 Corinthians 11. But she doesn't do anything. She doesn't do any praying or prophesying. And so here it's only when you pray or prophesy that the head covering stuff matters. What's all that about? Well, presumably... You're drawing attention to yourself. It's a bit like if you stand up at the front of church and pray and interview someone and give a book review or prophesy. We'll get to that in a few weeks' time, but simply put, it's just encouraging and applying biblical truth. Not the main sermon. 1 Timothy 2 would say, don't do that. That's, that's left to the elders. But if you're doing something up front in church... That's when you should have your head covered or um, uh, here in 1 Corinthians 11. Look, what does that mean for you and me? I actually really struggle to think there's anything similar to that specific level of application. Perhaps, perhaps, if uh, Kerry, my wife, was uh, leading us in prayer one morning, she comes to the front, dramatically takes off her wedding ring, throws it on the floor, and says, I am equal to my husband... I reject this sign. I can't even get mine off. Uh, that's how warm it is in church. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I reject this sign of my marriage. In fact, I no longer will take my husband's surname. I will, should revert to my maiden name. Now let us pray. Well, that would be quite something, wouldn't it? I think that's unlikely. Not least because her maiden name was so complicated, she had to spell it over the phone all the time. And to become a fuller was a great blessing to her. But... Um, I think that's unlikely. But that sort of demonstrative behavior, that's what not covering your head looked like for a woman back then. Do, do you see? But for us now, what you have on your head is neither here nor there. The attitude inside, well, that matters. There are cultural norms Paul is saying. We sort of get this in other arenas. Did you see the fuss this week in Parliament? Uh, so uh, Shadow Culture Secretary Tracy Brabin had a dress on and it was off the shoulder. And this caused enormous, ooh, how, how inappropriate that is to wear in Parliament. And of course the normal, well, she should be allowed to wear what she likes. You know, it's no worse than Jacob Rees-Mogg lying down on one of the, the, the benches. Uh, that's, and yeah, both of those things they're, they're probably inappropriate in Parliament. There's nothing wrong with them per se, I guess, lying down on a bench, wearing a sort of nightdress in, in, in Parliament. I mean, in one sense, who cares? But because they're slightly drawing attention to themselves, they're not culturally, we think, mm, don't do that in the House of Commons. Don't do those sort of things, most people instinctively think. Well, Paul is saying, don't do that in church. Don't draw attention to yourself in a way people are going, oh, why are you doing that? That's, that's a funny thing to do. Don't, that's, don't do it. So honor your head as culture dictates. There are cultural norms. Don't ignore them. We get beyond that, though. So uh, rather than just as culture dictates, verses 7 to 10, honor your head because creation shows that the sexes are different. Now, verses 7 to 10, it seems that the logic here is driven by the creation account, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. 
Verse 7, I don't know why in this translation, but verse 7 begins, for, because a man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God, but woman's the glory of man. Verse 8, for, because. So here is a biblical explanation for what he's just said about honoring your head. Now, there is then a difference in the creation. A man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Again, note, Paul doesn't say that woman's the image of God. That would seemingly make her entirely derivative. But she is the glory. Verses 8 and 9, further explanation. For man, or again, my husband, remember, we're talking about Adam and Eve. Man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So the first woman, Eve, it was the glory of man. She was taken out of him. She was made for him. Adam was the firstborn, as we had read in Genesis 2, with all the responsibilities that involved. And Eve was made so he could complete them. He couldn't do it on his own. Eve was the glory of Adam as when she joined him, the human race could become all that it was intended to be. And so Paul is saying, look, there's a difference in the creation of men and women. And that difference should be recognized, acknowledged, celebrated, not ignored. Verse 10, he's sort of a little conclusion at this point. I think you'd expect him to say, verse 10, therefore, wives, cover your heads. He doesn't say that. Verse 10, it's for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head. So he says to the wife, look, take responsibility. Do the right thing. I'm not demanding it of you. I'm just saying, do the right thing. You have responsibility. And do it because of the angels. Yeah, look. Um, in some sense, they're watching what we do. I think that's what that means. So Paul insists that men and women are different. There is nothing here about how in a household with a husband and a wife decisions get made, how things operate, who precisely does what. Paul's point here seems to be Wives, in the church gathering, don't bring shame upon your husbands. So it may be that a wife wants to ask, look, I found it a bit odd, odd sermon this morning, wasn't it? Odd passage. But let me ask you while we're talking about such things, are there any ways in which you ever feel undermined in public and particularly in church by me? I really don't want to do that. Husbands, well, they seem to bring shame upon Christ by, well, again, by blurring boundaries, by not being the man, by ignoring the spiritual responsibility that they have. Husbands could ask their wives, look, I've, again, I found it a bit of a strange passage we looked at, but do you think I should do more? Am I too passive? Do I annoy you in that way? at church? Those would be the sort of questions to ask. So on your head, as creation shows, the sexes are different. Although, verses 11 to 12, 
on your head, although they are also interdependent, these two sexes. And here's an important qualification. Verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, the woman is not independent of man, nor is the man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. That happens quite regularly in our hospitals these days. Uh, But everything comes from God. So here's an important qualification. Husbands and wives, they need one another. When men fail to honor their wives, they fail in one of the most basic responsibilities we have and will cause great harm for our families. And elsewhere, Ephesians 5 would say, yes, men, you're the head of the household, which means you sacrifice and you love and you give and you die for your spouses. But the biblical picture is of men and women as complementary, not identical. Plug and socket coming together, not so much made different from one another, but as husband and wives made different for one another, to complement. The intriguing thing in this passage is, is, it's not that the men and the women even have different roles. Both pray, both prophesy, both are doing the same things here in church in this passage. It's not they have different roles, but it's how they relate in a different way. Husbands taking a gentle spiritual lead, wives encouraging that. But they are interdependent. Let me try and draw things together a little bit with three, three statements of conclusion. The, the first is, is straightforward, I think. Men and women are different, and we should celebrate that. If nothing else, take that away from 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16, okay? Men and women are different, we should celebrate that. I'm not going to look in detail at the last few verses, but just verse 14. Verse 14 is a striking one. He says, Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it's her glory? Remember, ignore the sort of length of hair. That's slightly cultural. But Paul seems to be indicating, look, apart from what the Bible teaches in the, the creation accounts, Genesis 1 and 2, look, there's something just deep within us. There's something just in our natures that we know men and women are different. We know that. Most of us, we just get that instinctively, sort of psychologically, we know that. And so when it's denied, most people roll their eyes a little bit. So I don't know, a a shop like John Lewis says, we're doing away with separate areas for boys' toys and girls' toys, or boys' clothes and girls' clothes. And most people go, oh, that's a bit silly. I mean, it doesn't really matter, but it's a bit silly. Can we not say there are some toys that boys prefer and some toys that girls? It's a bit silly. But no one says anything because the cultural dogma is how dare you suggest such a thing. But most people think, look, they're different boys and girls. It's not over-caricature it, but they are different. You come here on a Thursday morning and you just observe girls sort of go around things and boys go through them and they're just, you know... It's not been taught at that age. They just do. And we sort of know that. Look, the Bible doesn't have lots of rules about what it means to be a man or a woman. It doesn't. And I don't, you know, it mustn't be prescriptive. And yet at the same time, in Genesis 2, the difference in gender belongs to the essence of humanity in a way that nothing else does. 
race, ethnicity, social distinctions, they're not essential to humanity. Whereas in Genesis 1 and 2, two genders is. And in our current cultural climate, that, of course, is being denied. And it will cause chaos. So... Um, wrote this book recently, Be True to Yourself. I had an email a couple of weekends ago from a, a, a chap in South London. I've never met him. Uh, just an email came through. He said, thank you for writing the book, Be True to Yourself. My daughter is 14 years old. She goes to uh, a girls' school in South London. The majority of the girls in her class identify as gender non-binary. She's so confused. So it's a great blessing. We can read this book. We're reading it with her as parents. It's really helpful. Thank you. And you think, really? The majority of 14-year-olds saying, I'm neither male nor female. And the sort of chaos that this will produce, I think we have to wait 20 years perhaps to see it come through. But it is mad. In 1 Corinthians 11, be one of those passages that says, look, men and women are different. It's okay. Don't be prescriptive about what that looks like. But let's celebrate that. I think Christians will want to do that. Christians will want to resist a sort of trend towards androgyny in dress, in makeup, etc. But men and women are different. We should celebrate that. A second statement uh, by way of conclusion. The second one is this. Look, behavior in church is not just a matter of personal preference. Just before this passage, you get um, verse 24. It's a concluding, a different section, but it feeds into this one. Chapter 10, verse 24. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And we should all come with that attitude to church. So you do notice it's quite a subtle argument Paul presents in 1 Corinthians 11 here. He doesn't simply say, oh, look, some people are getting offended, so just, just stop it. Wives, just stop prophesying and praying. It'll just calm everything down. He doesn't want to do that. He wants to fully integrate uh, the women and the wives and, and their gifts into church and the experience of church meetings. He wants both genders to fully pay their part and, uh, uh, and maximize their gifts in doing so. But you can't simply say, yeah, but I want to do it like this. Yeah, but I want to take my head off off or I want to take my ring off and I want to change my name. I want to do it this way. There are other people there. Be thoughtful. Be considerate. Don't be contentious. Look, I, I don't know. I think the, the closest, perhaps, to this in our setting, maybe, you know, is when some of, you know, if you're doing anything at the front of church, which is sort of more obvious, you don't wear stuff that people will make people raise their eyebrows. Just be considerate culturally, to who's in the room. That would just be thoughtful. That would be recognizing what Paul is saying. Behavior in church is not just a matter of personal preference. There are others around. Last of the three to say, do it all for the glory of God. Just before this passage again, chapter 10, verse 20, 31 whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. It's a simpler point, really, but when we gather at church, it's not about what you and I want. We're here for the glory of God. 
And so we do what honors him. And Paul says here in these, the first half of chapter 11, one way of honoring God is recognizing gender differences between men and women. Celebrate them. Model them in your attitude, in your dress, if that's appropriate. Remember, it's not what's on your head, but it's the attitude you have in your head. Am I here recognizing that men and women are different? Am I trying to honor appropriately? Am I not trying to be disruptive? That's what he's encouraging. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Feel free to ask me afterwards uh, about the questions you have. Honestly, I've spent more time working on this than would normally take on a sermon. I found myself praying, Lord, why is this passage not clearer? And I don't know the answer. I, I can tell you this, I have found grappling with this really humbling. You know, there are some passages that, yeah, I know what this is about. Funny story, um, good application, and um, uh, some sermons are easier to write than others. This is really hard, it's humbling. And so I sit there all week and go, help, help. And I think sometimes that's why we have these tricky passages. And of course, it makes us ultimately think, look, I, I, I can just about work out what this means. Am I going to recognize the authority of God in the scriptures, in his word, or say, I, I just got to run with my own culture? It forces those questions on us. But there it is. Don't dishonor the Lord and your spouse by ignoring gender differences. Honor him by appropriately, and you may have to work out what it means within your own marriage, if you are married, in your own setting. Oh, look, this sermon will be very different in a different part of the world, I think, in a different culture with different cultural expressions. But God has made us men and women, and we can celebrate that. Let's pray together. great God and Father, we thank you for that truth, that when you made humanity, you made men and women, you made us male and female, and it is together that we reflect fully your image. And Father, there, there, there's mystery to that, we don't quite understand all that that means, but we don't want to deny it, we want to live it out appropriately, and so for us as a church, help us Think wisely about how to do that, not being overly prescriptive and just aping our culture or the culture of 50 years ago and thinking that was better. Would you work it out if we're married, what it means in our own marriages, we pray. And Father, would we do it with an eye to the building up of your church, of your people, not being disruptive, not being contentious on such issues. And so would we operate as men and women, husbands and wives, in a manner which honors you, we pray. Amen.